Welcome to episode 14 of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Emanuela Gianfrido, associate professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Toledo in Ohio. Dr. Gianfrido is an expert in analytical extraction technologies and bioanalysis, and I'm really excited that she's able to join me for, for a conversation today. So far with the podcast, we've had six episodes focused on separation science, and we've had a nice mix of people coming from academia and industry, but I would say most of them have been pretty focused on chromatography uh, in a more sort of direct way. And so with this episode, I'm, I'm really excited that we're able to sort of broaden the conversation by getting into extract, extraction technologies and maybe sample preparation more broadly, because I think this is a, uh, very often an underappreciated but important step in many analytical workflows. So, Emanuela, thank you for joining me today for episode 14 of the podcast, which is now our, will be our seventh episode focused on separation science in the podcast series. I think technically we're actually into our second season already. Great. Thank you, Dwight, for the invitation. That's a, that's a very nice initiative to bring our community together, and uh, I'm glad I can contribute to it. Okay, great. So before we get into talking about your science and, and some other people's science, uh, I always like to give a kind of little bit of background introduction to give our listeners a sense for, for sort of your background, where you come from, uh, some of your experiences that, that shape your perspective. So uh, you did your bachelor's and master's studies in chemistry at the University of Calabria in, in Italy starting in 2005, and then completed the PhD also in chemistry uh, in 2013. And your dissertation work was focused on the development of methods involving um, sample preparation or te extraction technologies coupled with chromatography and mass spectrometry for targeted analysis in, in a variety of bio biological samples. And then after that, uh, after the PhD, you spent four years, I believe, working as a postdoctoral researcher um, in, in Waterloo, Canada, Correct. also yeah. working on micro extraction technologies. And then finally, you started at uh, in your current position at the University of Toledo as an assistant professor in 2018. And if if I, I read things right on LinkedIn, I saw that you were just promoted to associate professor. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, that's nice. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Uh, so on a, I guess a little more of a personal note, I would say that our, our respective research areas don't overlap too much, or, or at least they haven't. So I, I haven't seen you much at conferences, but... I certainly um, see your name all over the place, and it's clear that you're uh, a rising star in the community. So you even have one of your awards as, uh, has the, the label rising star. So you've already received several early career awards in the analytical community, including the Young Investigator and Separation Science Award, sponsored by the Analytical Division of the ACS, LCGC's uh, Emerging Leader Award in Chromatography, and you've also received a, a prestigious uh, career award from the NSF, which provides great support for academic researchers early in their careers. Uh, and you've already established a, a, a significant presence in the published literature with more than, I think, 50 papers and, and five book chapters. So before we move on, did I get all of that more or less correct? A very good summary. Okay, good. Okay, so... Um, before we get into the papers, the other thing I like to do is um, talk a little bit about some of the 
sort of early early events in in your life that kind of shaped your interest in science so where this comes from for me is during the pandemic i i listened to many science podcasts and i've always been really interested to hear what people have to say about sort of you know why they became interested in science what motivates them so it's always different and usually interesting somehow so I think uh, let's kick things off here by having you tell us a little bit about, yeah, are there specific events or sort of a time in your life that really increased your interest in science in a, in a general sense? Yes, I think uh, I was always a very curious kid and uh, I'm from the south of Italy, uh, from Calabria. Um, and I lived in a small town. I was always in contact with nature and I always remember helping my grandma, my mom, my uncle with uh, home chores and so on. So um, I actually came across with my very first separation sign experience uh, with preparation of limoncello. So my grandma was preparing this limoncello and she was using this process where she was peeling very carefully um, these lemon peels and then leave them macerating in the in the alcohol. So I was like, every, she doesn't know that, but she always forbid me to go and look at the at the alcohol like with the, all the pills suspended in it while it was in process. She was telling me that if I did that, would the, the limoncello wouldn't turn out good. <laughs> but I was always going to take a peek and I was always like so fascinated about how the solution will change color. So that was my very ex my very first experience with actually an extraction process, mm -hmm. like a liquid solid extraction process. I, I learned that many years later. And then uh, um, um, I also was fascinated since I was very, uh, very small um, with, uh, with a type of titration. And the type of titration that I experienced was titration uh, of olive oil. So my, my uncle uh, produced um, extra virgin olive oil and he was measuring the acidity of each batch of olive oil that he was producing with uh, titration with phenolphthalein. And I was seeing him doing like maybe the, not, not the most precise titration, but looking at this solution changing color, it was really fascinating for me. Okay. So these were my like home experiences. And then uh, another experience that I had, I think I was about 10 years old. Um, I, uh, I went uh, one day at, uh, to work with my dad, like my dad brought me to his workplace and my dad is a chemist and he was working at the time in a research institute for aroma and fragrances. Okay. And then I remember entering this lab and picking all these like wonderful fragrances of citrus and flowers. They said, oh dad, this smells so good. And then I remember going in front of what I after learning it was a GCMS yeah. and like I was seeing like all these speakers said dad what are those what mm -hmm. do you use this machine for and they told me to see the fragrances mm -hmm. and then like like 
something click in my brain. How can you see a fragrance? Mm -hmm. So these were my very first uh, experience with science and in particular separation science. And I think, uh, I think uh, that's when I, I got interested in science and then I became a separation science scientist later on. Wow, that's really, really interesting. I mean, those kinds of being able to connect uh, sort of that far back with those kinds of specific mm -hmm. things is, is really great. So you hear a lot of people talk about how, especially for, for children, for kids, how they are really um, intrigued by color, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I've never heard those examples used. So those are great. Yeah, I I was a lucky kid, I need to say, <laughs> to experience all of this in such young age. Very nice. Okay, um, so let's uh, let's get into the the substance here, I guess. Um, so one of my one of my goals, at least at this point with the podcast, is really to try to increase awareness, I think, about specific research areas among a wider audience. So I think we have a tendency, you know, we're all busy and tend to be very focused on our own things. And I think we, as a community, we miss a lot of opportunities to sort of connect the dots or, or um, borrow ideas from, from different areas that could really help move things along. So, um, so what we're going to do here is talk about a few papers that in our correspondence you, you highlighted as uh, ones that you'd want to talk about. And um, so the first one was published in Journal of Chromatography A last year with the title Leveraging Multimode Microextraction and Liquid Chromatography Stationary Phases for Quantitative Analysis of Neurotoxin Beta and Methylamino L alanine and other non proteogenic. Uh, amino acids. So first, I think it'd be great if you could uh, start by briefly describing the work uh, and why you think this one's particularly exciting. So I'll just say here that uh, for people that are interested in following up and learning more, we'll put the uh, sort of the citation details in the show notes so uh, people can follow up. But it'd be great if you could just give a, a brief description and, and why this area is particularly interesting to you. Yes. So as, uh, as we discussed just a few minutes ago about my background, I like to take, I like to be inspired by what surrounds me. And like this work with the BMA, it started because uh, I live in Toledo. I work at the University of Toledo. And uh, Toledo is uh, on the shore of Lake Erie's. Lake Erie, and in particular, like on the uh, shallowest part of Lake Erie, where ev where every year we have proliferation of toxic toxic algal bloom, and uh, actually the very first drinking water shutdown in the U.S. happened in Toledo in 2014 because of environmental contamination, because these toxic algal blooms, um, like are responsible for producing uh, toxin, toxins called, called microcystins that are uh, hepatotoxins. Um, so 
like the drinking water system in Toledo was shut down for four days, four days, I believe. So we do a lot of research in, uh, in, uh, for uh, water quality. And in particular, I came across, actually it was a documentary that is called The Toxic Puzzle. And uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime that was talking about harmful algal blooms uh, and the toxins that this algal bloom produce. What caught my attention about this documentary is that they were focusing on a very under, underlooked toxin that is a neurotoxin called BMA. So they were describing how um, this toxin was discovered and linked to the harmful algal bloom, but there is a lot of controversy in literature about its uh, toxicity and about the exposure pathways and the toxicity mechanism. And uh, I actually, I was so fascinated by this documentary that one day in group meeting, I told my group, hey guys, let's watch this documentary. I think there is some good research topics that we can, uh, we can uh, start from this. And then we start doing some literature search, like, and um, we saw that this neurotoxin was associated to Alzheimer, ALS, but different research group, they have completely different opinion about the toxicity mechanism or about the toxicity in general. Some people say it's not linked to Alzheimer's, some people say it is. Hmm. And then when we were digging a little bit deeper into why we had this controversy, we noticed something. Um, one of my students came to me and he told me, the analytical method is a nightmare. And then I read that paper and said, I really agree with you. Mm. So we start looking into the analytical methods that were used to um, actually um, isolate these uh, uh, neurotoxin from water and from brain samples and uh, actually separate these toxins, toxin from two um, uh, structural isomers that are also toxic, but in less extent. So talking to my student that was not at all one of the topics of his, of his thesis, it became later on, but I said, okay, why don't we give it a try? So um, we saw that in literature, most of the method used for BMA, uh, for separation of BMA and its isomers were based on helic. And we noticed they were like 30 minutes long uh, LC runs and that 30 minutes didn't include the uh, column equilibration. Um, my students said, okay, I really want to explore this further. I want to try to do better. And I said, I'm, let's do it. I'm going to help you to do that. So we started developing, um, we started testing different type of columns. And what we wanted to achieve there is to have a, a very fast separation, but also avoid derivatizing BMA and its isomer. So BMA is a very small molecule. It's like an amino acid-like molecule. Its molecular weight is 118 Dalton. So uh, it's, it's hard. To, to separate and like it also has some issue like with uh, uh, mass spectrometry detection because 
it, it's a small molecule that, and like it's, its fragments are, are very small. Um, so usually people derivatize it, but while derivatization may work well to apply to a reverse phase separation, or it may work well from analysis, like for analysis from simple samples such as water, uh, uh, we didn't think that was the best approach when you had to do it from complex samples such as brain. So uh, long story short, uh, we tested many different uh, methods and we come out actually with an interest met met interesting method that uses a uh, um, reverse phase column, a pentafluorophenyl column with a kind of a normal phase, mobile phase. So we start from very um, high uh, percent of organic solvent and uh, we could actually achieve the separation of BMA and two of its isomers um, in uh, uh, more or less five minutes. So once we were happy with the separation, we said, okay, now let's find a way to isolate this uh, BMA from water sample. How can we pre-concentrate? It's a small molecule. So pre-concentration is very critical because on top of being small, it's also very polar. So separation from water, uh, it's challenging. So we used um, um, type of uh, solid phase microextraction sorbent that is called mix mode that can extract analytes via ion exchange and also uh, hydrophobic interaction. Why that's, that's why it's called mixed mode. Um, and um, we could pre-concentrate um, these analytes and achieve limit of quantitation at low PPB level. Uh, full disclaimer here, we didn't use the most sensitive instruments, so we think if maybe we move for a, a triple, quadruple, or high-res mass spectrometer, like we could even hit PPT uh, levels for extraction of this uh, neurotoxin. Now what we are working on, once we understood the fundamental of extraction and separation for these molecules from water, uh, we moved into more complex samples that um, are shown to bioaccumulate these neurotoxins, meaning brain, because it's a neurotoxin, so it, it accumulates in brain, but also blue crab. And actually, blue crab is one of the main route of exposure uh, of, this, of this toxin through the food chain. So that has been um, a wild ride, I must say. We are still working on it. Uh, we noticed that uh, mixing these complex samples with solvent actually promote the ion, ion exchange uh, process for pre-concentration on SPME sorbents. So we we hope to we we hope to submit the uh, related publication soon. Okay, nice. Well, that's uh, also a very interesting story in terms of um, sort of seeing, you know, what's what's going on in your environment and and really picking up a problem like that. So that's that's really fascinating. So um, so you clearly have a lot of experience with uh, SPME um, going back to to your postdoc days and now uh, with your current work. And, and so I would say as someone who's not an expert in that area, my sense among the broader community is that this is a, 
uh, underappreciated technique and maybe, I mean, I always, when I teach instrumental, I always talk about the original papers in my, in my class, but a lot has changed uh, since then. And, and I think it's, it's hard for, you know, users of the technique to, I think, keep up sometimes. So what would be maybe two, um, you know, if you, if you had the chance to have everyone know two things <laughs> about what's going on, what, what, what would you say? Can I tell you three things? Sure. <laughs> so the first thing, and that's something I, I always get asked when I uh, at conference or uh, seminars. Uh, the first thing that uh, I want to clarify is that you can achieve quantification, accurate quantification with this technique. Mm. So many people have the misconception that, uh, that because it's a non-exhaustive technique, mm -hmm. meaning absolute recovery, it can be less than 100%. You cannot do quantitation. That's, that, that's not true. That mm. is uh, like decades of literature that show quantitation is possible. You can do quantitation at equilibrium condition, quantitation in pre-equilibrium condition. You can load uh, internal standard on the fiber and do um, um, like in situ quantification that are so kinetic calibration. There are so many methods that allow you to uh, quantify your sample with SPME. Okay. Uh, I just need to know how to do it how to do it. Yeah, there is a little bit of theory behind. And that brings me to my second point is that this is not a um, straightforward technique in terms that like many people have the misconception that in the same way they buy a SPE or a catcher kit and they just do like add that specific amount of solvent centrifuge for a certain amount of time and everything will work. With this technique, because it's an equilibrium-based technique, you need to do some optimization. But once you do the optimization and you keep your extraction condition constant, such as temperature extraction time, and you also need to optimize the way you desorb the analytes into the instrument, the technique works. Um, the third thing I want to mention is that another big misconception is related to the fact that SPME can only be applied for headspace sam sampling. Mm -hmm. So this was true for the first 20 years after the discovery and the commercialization of the technique. Mm -hmm. However, in the, I will say in the past 10, 15 years, um, there have been a biocompatible extraction phase that were developed and some of them are commercially available that can be used with gas chromatography and liquid chromatography. This biocompatible extraction phase actually prevent the extraction phase from accumulating biofouling and meaning you can reuse this extraction phase for multiple times but also the fact that you don't have accumulation, for example, of proteins on the surface of the uh, of the of the device. This actually prevents any bias in the any bias in the mass transfer of the small molecule from the sample to the extraction phase. Mm -hmm. So, the use of biocompatible extraction phase actually uh, open like um, opportunities for so many applications, including in vivo sampling in. Uh, biofluids or tissues uh, not only for like uh, like um, 
biological tissue, but also plant tissues. So I always like to tell my students, students that the only limits that this technique has, it's their imagination, mm -hmm. if they know the fundamentals of the technique. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, of all the work that you do with these materials, um, what fraction would you say involves materials of your own? So let's say homemade versus commercially available. Just curious. Um, I will say 50-50. Okay. For gas chromatography, we mainly use uh, commercial available extraction phases mm -hmm. uh, because they are available in so many different chemistry that they cover the uh, extraction range that we want them to cover. Um, regarding uh, liquid chromatography application, I would say um, we fifty percent of the device that we use for liquid chromatography application are lab made. Uh, the reason being that we are testing um, some classes of analytes right now, like PFAS. Uh, perfluorinated alkyl substances that mm -hmm. work very well with a type of extraction phase that is not commercial available, so mm -hmm. we do them mm -hmm. in the lab. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are C18 phases that are commercially available, there are mixed mode phases that are commercially available, so there are options out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so uh, now I'd like to move on to the second paper. So this one deals with a, a very different topic of analyzing uh, so-called produced water. That is the water that is a byproduct of oil and gas extraction. So this paper was published last year in um, Environmental Science and Technology with the title, Unraveling the Complex Composition of Produced Water by Specialized Extraction Methodologies. So um, again, if you could start with kind of a brief uh, description of that work, that'd be great. Yes. So talking about produce water, um, when we think about anything that contains the word water, we think about something possibly clean or simple. This sample was everything but clean and simple. Mm -hmm. So produce water, as you mentioned, is a waste byproduct of fracking activities and Right now, especially in the U.S., fracking is like growing uh, for uh, extraction of oils and natural gas. So this produced water, it's uh, like when um, the fracking process occur, like there are what are called fracking fluids that are injected in high pressure in the ground to crack the shells and extract oil and natural gas. And the produced water is basically these fracking, flu fracking fluids that emerge back on the surface and they become an environmental waste. Uh, the problem is that uh, for each fracking activity, there are like, I would say, thousands, if not billions of gallons produced of um, uh, produced water. Uh, so now there is a new emergency in try to understand how to deal with this uh, waste. Can it be recycled? Can it be like purified and disposed in the environment? In the beginning um, of uh, fracking, uh, um, 
um, activities like this waste was directly disposed in uh, uh, surface waters in the Gulf of Mexico and rivers and the amount of hydrocarbons for example is a class of compounds that is in high concentration in produced water was actually contaminating drinking water of surrounding um, residential areas mm. in such extent that when uh, uh, residents will like light up um, a match close to their uh, kitchen uh, faucet the kitchen will like catch on fire mm. so um, the main issue with these samples is that we don't know what is in there because it's not only they are not only contaminated with oils and whatever comes from the ground but also fracking firms um, add proprietary um, chemical blends to improve the fluidodynamics and the efficiency of the fracking. So it's an analytical nightmare because they also contain salts in very high concentration. Mm. So uh, this work was actually, um, it, is, it was actually a beautiful collaboration between my group, uh, Professor Kirchhoff group at the University of Toledo and Professor Shug work at uh, the University of Texas Arlington. And like we, we were discussing, you know, science and they said okay you use this technique for the extraction of complex samples my colleague john kirchhoff does analysis of metals using microstruction technology and we thought and uh, uh, dr shug um he has been working like for for many years with this type of sample so he said okay let's see what we can do let's see what what chemicals what metals we can extract from these samples and like what information we can get out of it mm -hmm. so um initially it wasn't an easy an easy task uh, just because the complexity of these samples like was just contaminating these uh, solid phase microstruction devices. Sometime even our instrument got contaminated with residues of oil. Mm -hmm. But then it took us a while to optimize the extraction procedure in such a way we got reproducible results and we could actually pre-concentrate any of the organic solubles that were so um, dissolved in this in these samples. Um, so once we had our method optimized, we could see that the amount of chemicals, like I'm like for my group, we focus mainly on uh, organic molecules, was so high that even a 60-minute GCMS um, run couldn't separate all of them properly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ideally, we would have loved to go for bidimensional GC or bidimensional GC with HRMS, but we didn't have that capability. So we uh, work a lot with um, data deconvolution and mass spectrometry, uh, low resolution mass spectrometry and internal standard to try to identify each of the chemicals. So. Um, we were surprised to see that among all the chemicals we could extract, only 5% were like identified with 100% or mm -hmm. close to 100% certainty. But we were, um, we were um, surprised to see how many other chemicals thin film SPME could extract. Mm -hmm. 
So now our limitation was not the sample prep anymore, but was the instrument that couldn't handle everything mm -hmm. that, the, mm -hmm. that the tiny SPME device could extract. Mm -hmm. So uh, then what we did, we merged all the data from the organic solubles with all the metals obtained from the, uh, sorry, with all the data obtained from the metal analysis. So just to give you an idea, we could extract the earth elements, some radioactive elements, precious metals, and so on, uh, heavy metals as well. So we combine all the data and we could actually uh, discriminate samples based on the fracking site. So we could understand that the composition of the produced water is very characteristic of where the fracking occur. Mm -hmm. We believe this is related not only to the geochemistry of the fracking site, but also to the fact that each fracking firm maybe had chemical blends mm -hmm. of different composition. Um, and another discovery that we did was that in the literature, there were methods available for um, analysis of produced water, both by LC and GC. However, we noticed that to deal with this uh, complex composition, all the samples were uh, filtrated first with nylon filters. Mm. Our sample prep does not involve any filtration. We mm. just put the sample as it, in, as it is in a vial and we perform uh, SPME on it. So we compare the response that we got from a filter samples and an unfiltered samples uh, sample, and we could see that 95% of the chemicals, uh, it's removed by the filtration. Wow. So that doesn't help to give an untargeted broad characterization of this sample. So this was like a plus of our method that did not require any filtration uh, before instrumental analysis. Nice. Uh, so now that, so how long have you been working on this? On the produced water? Yeah. Um, I think the initial method development, it started in 2019, and the first okay. paper was published in 21, I believe. And then we follow up with the uh, metal analysis. So this last paper like, has been since 2019 that we work mm -hmm. on it. And actually, a nice outcome of this work is that now we are further work, working with a um, company that is trying to purify and remediate produced water. So they actually have different purification strategy and they send us the sample and tell us, we think this is clean. But is it clean? In most mm -hmm. cases, it's not. Mm -hmm. So we are providing inputs on like, okay, this, um, this filtration process is not really effective in removing, for example, hydrocarbons or in mm -hmm. removing aromatic species. Or we also, now we expanded the analysis of produced water also to analysis of PFAS. Mm -hmm. And we noticed that sometimes like those filters that are used sequentially to remove PFAS, they actually leach PFAS. So yeah. sometimes the, the samples at the end of the filtration system are more contaminated with PFAS than the mm. original samples. Oh, so my. it's a okay. it's an interesting work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So so now that you have some experience in this area, what would you say are some of the kind of the most urgent or important aspects of, of this research area that need to be addressed? Uh, the research area of analytical extraction, in particular, related to produce water. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. For for produce water analytical extraction in general, uh, I believe we need to move toward um, at the same time simplifying the analytical extraction protocols and uh, also guarantee uh, efficient pre-concentration. Because sometimes what I notice that especially for complex samples, um, sample prep protocols are so long, they use a lot of organic solvent, multiple steps, but at the end of this long process, the pre-concentration is not always effective and the instrument contamination still occur. So uh, by moving away from classical sample preparation approaches and be a little bit innovative in the technique you need to use, for example, like I mentioned before, SPME, maybe we'll take a little bit to understand how everything works and study the fundamental aspect of it. But once you know how to tune these extraction conditions, the the saving that you can gain in terms of time, resources, and uh, uh, um, they are like significant. And especially when working with certain classes of chemicals such as PFAS. PFAS are the forever chemicals, they are everywhere, they contaminate everything. So if you want to analyze PFAS, you cannot have a complex sample preparation protocol because every single step of your sample prep protocol could actually cross-contaminate your samples. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we need to move toward miniaturized sample prep system a uh, fast sample prep system, avoid using of solvents, let's try to go green. We do a favor to our own pockets, considering how much uh, the cost of solvent has increased in the past two years, but also we are doing a favor to the environment. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Uh, so the third uh, paper and the last one we're going to discuss here comes from outside your your research group. So this one was published last year in Analytical Chemistry with the title Thin Film Microextraction Enables Rapid Isolation and Recovery of DNA for Downstream Amplification Assays. So this work is from Jared Anderson's group at Iowa State. So given that uh, this work comes from outside your group, what is um, sort of what draws your attention to this in particular? So um, my group and all the work that actually I've done during my postdoc and my uh, PhD was always focused on small molecules. Mm. So small molecules can be challenging. However, I, I always thought that one big gap in the evolution of solid phase microstruction technology will be addressing analysis of bigger biological molecules. And this uh, work in the Anderson group uh, exactly achieves that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, extraction of nucleic acids uh, has so many different important application, for example, in uh, modern genetics, forensic science, uh, microbial diagnosis. Um, Also, I uh, I know that recently uh, this work uh, in the Anderson group has been applied to uh, 
plant science. So the implication of the works are many and working with nucleic acids and isolation and purification of nucleic acid, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very complicated. It's, uh, it's a very important challenge in, our, in the separation community. And that's why this, this work has caught my attention because I think uh, the implication of it uh, are significant. The work is uh, groundbreaking. Okay, great. So one one of the things that strikes me from looking at that paper in particular is, and, and sort of reflecting on, on all, uh, I, I guess on the other ones as well, is that um, these techniques really rely a lot on, on knowledge about materials chemistry. So what, uh, I guess, what advice would you have for young scientists who might have a kind of interest in materials chemistry but are really kind of unsure about how to connect it to to different different things mm -hmm. yes you got the point there uh, i think uh, material science uh, material chemistry is the perfect complement for the type of research that we do in separation chemistry because if we want to tune extraction conditions, sometimes we can know everything about that sample of that molecule, but we need to have the right material to do that. Mm -hmm. um, there are, the, honestly, there are not many groups in the world that um, have advanced expertise in both material science and analytical chemistry. The Anderson group is a perfect example of this. Um, another group that come in mind is uh, Professor Veronica Pino's group in the University de la Laguna in Spain, but these are rare cases. Mm -hmm. So for young scientists interested in material science, I will say, don't be afraid to reach out to analytical chemistry research group, to analytical chemistry PIs, because your material can be the solution for problems that other group had for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you merge your expertise in material science with someone else's expertise in extraction technology or chromatography or any other, other type of separation chemistry, I do believe great results can can come from that type of collaboration. And it's always important to find complementary expertise when you want to do inter, in, uh, interdisciplinary research. Mm -hmm. So my advice again is you have a material, you don't know how many problems that material can solve for someone else. So mm -hmm. just reach out. Yeah, okay, great. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, in these episodes, I like to close with some, let's say, shorter bits of advice and thoughts. So to that end, I have a few questions for you here. So the first question is, or, or the, the beginning of a statement you can complete is, the best analytical, analytical advice ever given to me was? The best analytical advice that was ever given to me is, you need to understand the fundamentals. Mm. Everybody that has done some research in the publishing group know this statement very mm. well because mm. Professor Publishing loves it. Mm. Um, but, you know, at the beginning, um, you think, oh my gosh, like why always with these fundamentals? But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you just want to do your research and publish your papers. But, um, I think, especially now that I have my own research group, mm -hmm. I appreciate this, uh, 
advice most because I think the best research that came out from my research group was because we did a deep study of SPME fundamentals and we use it to address very difficult problem in uh, analytical extraction and separations. Um, so, I mean, what makes the difference between being an expert in a technique and just being a user of a technique, it's really understand how the technique works. That's why I believe it's important to read uh, because the more you know about the capability of that technique, the more you can use it to address many different analytical challenges. Yeah, that's great. I think it's kind of related to, so I agree with you 100%, and I think it's kind of related to um, uh, maybe a different uh, perspective on this is um, what e Eric Regalado at Merck says, which is you can't control what you don't understand. Exactly. And I think that's a very short way of exactly hitting the point so yes yeah. and it's not just because i'm talking to you now but i need to mention that in my group we are big fan of your lcgc column on uh, lc uh, troubleshooting because you really push on the fundamentals of lc separation and yeah, we love so, it yeah. <laughs> yeah i think uh, that's certainly what we aim for there is um it's, it's kind of a, a unique uh, venue i guess in the sense that you can really take the time and the words needed to to make those things very clear so thank you i appreciate that Okay, second question is, and this is more general, I suppose, which is what would you say to a young scientist just getting started? Okay, I think young scientists, especially this new generation of young scientists, need to hear, their, need to hear this more, so I'm going to say it. Don't give up when your experiment fails. You need to repeat your experiment over and over and don't expect to have a different outcome if you don't change the way you exp your experiment fails. Um, the reason why I'm saying this is because I believe young generation of scientists, they are used to have everything readily available and fast. Knowledge now is like uh, on our phones, on Google's, like everything you need to know is uh, one uh, Google search away. Uh, and that type of mentality sometimes uh, make young scientists think that, okay, if your experiment failed once, then it will fail forever. And like you, some people said, okay, my experiment failed. I'm not a good scientist. Uh, I, I need to quit and do something else. No, you can repeat over and over, like be like apply perseverance in your science and uh, you will never know what you, what you can achieve. So don't quit. And the second is uh, uh, the second tip that I can give to young scientists is to um, try to diversify your skill set as much as possible, especially when uh, you are doing your graduate studies. That's, I, I believe, it's the best time for you to explore new things um, um, and get new challenges. Um, you know, sometimes 
when uh, I noticed that when I propose my students something that is a little bit out of that comfort zone, I don't always see excitement and I understand that because like what is not familiar may sound intimidating, but if you, if you push your comfort zone forward more and more and you acquire expertise that are easily applicable to a wide range of analytical technique, this will serve you in the future a lot because that it's like if you have at home, if you the more um, the more diverse is your toolbox, the more things you can fix at your house. <laughs> uh, so the same is with your expertise as a scientist and in particular as an analytical scientist. Great. Yeah, this is also really great advice. Well, with that, I think it's uh, it's time to wrap up. Uh, Manuela, thanks for joining me for the podcast today. We've really uh, covered a lot of uh, territory and territory that's new to the podcast here. It's been really fascinating to hear perspectives sort of on your own background, but also how you're approaching some of these really challenging problems today um, with uh, extraction technologies and, and sample preparation more generally. I think, again, that a lot of us that are not experts in this area can really learn a lot about how to improve our analysis by, by doing those things better. Thank you for the invitation. This, uh, this was great.